Section 67 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 67. Thought and Ideas of the Period. By the Reverend H. F. Stewart. Part 1. The 4th and 5th centuries A.D., were marked by the rise of no new schools of metaphysics, and were illustrated by only one preeminent philosopher. In theology, the period can boast great names, perhaps the greatest since the Apostles of Christ, but in philosophy it is singularly barren. Plotinus, A.D. 205-270, the chief exponent and practical founder of that reconstruction of Greek philosophy known as Neoplatonism, had indeed many disciples. But Proclus the Lycian, A.D. 412-485, is the only one of them who can be said to have advanced in any marked degree the study of pure thought. The mind of the age was inclined towards religion, or at least religious idealism, rather than towards metaphysics. Nor is this matter for surprise when we remember the spiritual revival of the centuries preceding a movement which began under the Flavians and had by no means spent its force when Constantine came to the throne. From an early period in the empire, and more especially under the Severi, men were turning in disgust and disillusion to religion as a refuge from the evils of the world in which they lived, as a sphere in which they could realize dreams of better things than those begotten of their present discontent. This fact explains the quickening of the older cults and the ready adoption of new ones, which issued in a promiscuous pantheon and a bewildering medley of religious rites and practices. Then came philosophy and sought to bring order out of chaos. It tried, and with some success, to clear away superstition and to raise the believer in God's many to living communion with the one divine of which they were but different manifestations. There is no doubt that Proclus, who united to some extent the heterogeneous system of Plotinus, was engaged in the proper business of philosophy, viz. the contemplation of metaphysical truth. There is equally no doubt that in practice the philosophy of the age was addressed to the same human need as its religion, and that need was a better knowledge of God. It is most significant that the final rally of the old religions was under the banner of a philosophy. Julian and his supporters were Neoplatonists. We may therefore claim that the temper of the times was on the whole religious, concerned chiefly with man's relation to God, and the fact that the Church had recently achieved so signal a victory is in itself an indication that the best intellects had gravitated towards her. Thus the highest thought was Christian, finding expression in those systematized ideas about God which are summed up in the word theology. It would, however, be a grave mistake to suppose that the age which saw the triumph of the Christian idea and the establishment of Christianity as the state religion was entirely of one mind and Christian to the core. Side by side with the great current of Christian thought and belief that was now running free after a long subterranean course, there flowed a large volume of purely pagan opinion or preconception. Such interfiltration as took place 
being carried on by unseen channels. Thus, while eager and courageous spirits were contending for the faith with all kinds of weapons against all kinds of foes throughout the empire, men, and some of them Christian men, were writing and speaking as though no such thing as Christianity had come into the world. And the age that witnessed the conversion of Constantine and inherited the benefits of that act was an age that in the East listened to the interminable hexameters of Nonus's Dionysiaca, which contained no conscious reference to Christianity, that laughed over the epigrams of Cyrus, that delighted in the many frankly pagan love stories and saw nothing surprising in the attribution of one of them, the Ethiopica, to the Christian bishop Heliodorus, that in the West applauded the panegyrics when they compared emperor and patron to the hierarchy of gods and heroes, and that in extremity found its consolation in philosophy rather than in the gospel. Footnote. The most famous instance of such reversion is afforded by Boethius, who died in prison A.D. 525, but who fairly represents the age before him. End of footnote. This persistence of paganism in the face of obvious defeat was due to a number of cooperating causes. Roman patriotism, which saw in the worship of the gods and the secret name of Rome the only safeguard of the eternal city, the cults of Sibyl, Isis, Mithra, and Orpheus, with their dreams of immortality, the stern tradition of the Stoic emperor Marcus, the lofty ideals of the Neoplatonists. All these factors helped to delay the final triumph. But probably the strongest and most persistent conservative influence was that of the rhetoric, by which European education was dominated then, as it was by logic in the Middle Ages, and as it has been since the Renaissance, by humane letters. Rhetoric lay in wait for the boy as he left the hands of the grammarian, and was his companion at every stage of his life. It went with him through school and university, it formed his taste and trained or paralyzed his mind, but more than this, it opened to him the avenues of success and reward. For although by the 4th century oratory had lost its old political power, rhetoric still remains a bread-winning business. It was always lucrative, and it led to high position, even to the consulship, as in the case of Ausonius the Reiter, A.D. 309-392, who was Gratian's tutor and afterwards quester, prefect of Gaul, and finally consul. Here is cause enough to account for the long life and paramount influence of rhetoric in the schools. Now the instrument with which both schoolmaster and professor fashioned their pupils was pagan mythology and pagan history. The great literatures of the past supplied the theme for declamation and exercise. Rules of conduct were deduced from maxims that passed under the names of Pythagoras, Solon, Socrates, and Marcus Aurelius. It was inevitable that the thoughts of the grown men should be expressed in terms of paganism when the education of the youth was upon these lines. And this education was for all, not only for the children of unbelievers. Gregory of Nyssa himself informs us that he attended the classes of heathen rhetoricians. So did Gregory of Nazianzus and his brother Caesarius, and so did Basil. John Chrysostom was taught by Labanius, the last of the sophists, 
who claimed that it was what he learned in the schools that led his friend Julian back to the worship of the gods. Even Tertullian, who would not suffer a Christian to teach rhetoric out of heathen books, could not forbid his learning it from them. They were indeed the only means to knowledge. Efforts were made to provide Christian books modeled upon them. Proba, wife of a prefect of Rome, compelled Virgil to prophecy of Christ by the simple means of reading Christianity into a santo of lines from the Aeneid. Juvencus the Presbyter dared, in Jerome's phrase, to submit the majesty of the gospel to the laws of meter, and to this end composed four books of evangelic history. The two Apollinarii turned the Old Testament into heroic and pindaric verse, and the New Testament into Platonic dialogues. Nonnus, the author of the Dionysiaca, rewrote St. John's Gospel in hexameters. Eudocia, consort of Theodosius II, composed a poetical paraphrase of the law and of some of the prophets. But as soon as Julian's edict against Christian teachers was withdrawn, grammarians and readers returned to the classics with renewed zest and a sense of victory gained. Jerome and Augustine, both of them students and teachers, pointed out the educational capacity of the sacred books. But some eighty years after the publication of the De Doctrina Christiana, in which Augustine, as a teacher, urged the claims of Scripture, we find Ennodius, the Christian bishop, speaking of rhetoric as queen of the arts and of the world. It was reserved for Cassiodorus, A.D. 480-575, the father of literary monasticism in the West, to attempt the realization of Augustine's dream. Like Ennodius, his older contemporary, Cassiodorus loved and practiced rhetoric, but he had visions of a better kind of education, and in 535-6 he made an abortive attempt to found a school of Christian literature at Rome, quote, in which the soul might gain eternal salvation and the tongue acquire beauty by the exercise of the chaste and pure eloquence of Christians, end quote. His project was ill-timed. It was the moment of the invasion of Belisarius, and Rome had other business on hand than schemes of education and reform. The schools were pagan to the end, and it may be said with truth that rhetoric retarded the progress of the faith, and that Christianity, when it conquered the heathen world, was captured by the system of education which it found in force. The result of rhetorical training is very plainly seen in all the literature of the period, and in the characters of the writers. Even the fathers are deeply tinged with it, and Jerome himself admits that one must always distinguish in their writings between what is said for the sake of argument, dialecticos, and what is said as truth. Though perjury and false witness were heavily punished, lying was never an ecclesiastical offense, and rigid veracity cannot be claimed as a constant characteristic of any Christian writer of the period, except Athanasius, Augustine, and outside his panegyrics, Eusebius of Caesarea. Reference has already been made to some of the Eastern authors who wrote in the full current of Christianity, but with no sensible trace of its influence. Passing west, we find ourselves in better company than that of the novelist and epigrammatists, 
and among men who even more effectively illustrate the tendencies of the time. By Macrobius we are introduced to a little group of gentlemen who meet together in a friendly way for the discussion of literary, antiquarian, and philosophic matters. Most of the characters of the Saturnalia are known to us from the history of the day and from their own writings, which express opinions sufficiently similar to those which Macrobius lends them in his symposium to make it a faithful mirror of fourth-century thought and conversation. There is Praetextatus, at whose house the company first assembles to keep the Saturnalia. He is a scholar and antiquary, a statesman and philosopher, the hierophant of half a dozen cults, formerly prefect of the city and proconsul of Achaea. His dignity and urbanity, his piety, his grave humor, his overflowing erudition, his skill in drawing out his friends, render him in all respects the proper president of the Feast of Reason. There is Flavian the Younger, a man of action and of greater mark in the real world than Pratic status, who, however, plays but a small part on Macrobius's stage. There is Q. Aurelius Symmachus, the wealthy senator and splendid noble, the zealous conservative and patron of letters, who opposed Ambrose in the affair of the altar of victory and brought Augustine to Milan as teacher of rhetoric. There are two members of the house of Albinus, chiefly remarkable for their worship of Virgil. There is Servius, the young but erudite critic who carries his scholarship with so much grace and modesty. There is Evangelus, whose rough manners and uncouth opinions serve as a foil to the strict correctness of the rest. There is Dicerius, the doctor, the friend of Ambrose and Horus, whose name proclaims his foreign birth. These persons of the Saturnalia we know to have been living men. What are the topics of their conversation? The range is astonishing. From antiquities, the origin of the calendar of the Saturnalia of the Toga Praetextata, linguistics, derivations and wondrous etymologies, literature, especially Cicero and Virgil, science, medicine, physiology and astronomy, religion and philosophy, a syncretism of all the cults, ethics, chiefly stoical, e.g. the morality of slavery and suicide, down to table manners and the jokes of famous men. In a word, everything that a Roman gentleman ought to know is treated somewhat mechanically but with elaborate fullness, except Christianity, of which there is no hint. And yet, one of the Albini had a Christian wife, and the other was almost certainly himself a Christian. The silence on a topic which must have touched all the characters to whom Macrobius lends utterance is equally felt when we pass to fact from fiction. Symmachus, in the whole collection of his private letters, refers but rarely to religion, and never once to Christianity. Claudian, the poet-courtier of Christian emperors, has only one passage which betrays a clear consciousness of the new faith, and that is in a lampoon upon a bibulous soldier. It is the same with panegyrists, the same with allegorist and dramatist Marcianus Capella, whose manual of the arts, entitled The Nuptials of Mercury and Philology, represents the best culture of the epoch and enjoyed an almost unexampled popularity during the Middle Ages, passes over Christianity without a word. The anonymous Querulus, 
an agreeable comédie à thèse, written for the entertainment of a great Gallican household, and obviously reflecting the serious thought of its audience, is entirely dominated by the stoical and heathen notion of fate. This general silence cannot be due to ignorance, rather it is due to Roman etiquette. The great conservative nobles, the writers who catered for their instruction and amusement, would seem to have agreed to ignore the new religion. We must now consider in some detail the character of this persistent paganism, especially as it is presented to us by Macrobius, either in the Saturnalia or in his commentary on the dream of Scipio, to which last we owe our knowledge of the treatise of Cicero bearing the title. The philosophy of religion of these two works is pure Neoplatonism, drawn straight from Plotinus. Macrobius seems to have known the Greek original. He gives actual citations from the Aeneids in several places, and one passage, Commentary 114, contains as good a summary of the Plotinian trinity as was possible in Latin. The universe is the temple of God, eternal like Him, and filled with His presence. He, the first cause, is the source and origin of all that is and all that seems to be. By the overflowing fertility of His majesty, He created from Himself mind, mens. Mind retains the image of its author so long as it looks towards Him. When it looks backwards, it creates soul anima. Soul, in its turn, keeps the likeness of mind while it looks towards mind. But when it turns away its gaze, it degenerates insensibly, and although itself incorporeal, gives rise to bodies celestial, the stars, and terrestrial, man, beasts, vegetables. Between man and the stars there is real kinship, as there is between man and God. Thus all things from the highest to the lowest are held together in an intimate and unbroken connection, which is what Homer meant when he spoke of a golden chain let down by God from heaven to earth. Then Macrobius describes the soul's descent. Tempted by the desire for a body, it falls from where it dwelt on high with the stars its brethren. It passes through the seven spheres that separate heaven from earth, and in its passage acquires the several qualities which go to make up the composite nature of man. As it descends, it gradually, in a sort of intoxication, sheds its attributes and forgets its heavenly home, though not in all cases to the same extent. This descent into the body is a kind of temporary death, for the body, soma, is also the tomb, or sema, an old platonic play upon words, a tomb from which the soul can rise at the body's death. Man is indeed immortal, the real man is the soul which dominates the things of sense. But although the body's death means life to the soul, the soul may not anticipate its bliss by voluntary act, but must purify itself and wait, for we must not hasten the end of life while there is still possibility of improvement. Heaven is shut against all but those who win purity, and the body is not only a tomb, it is a hell, infera. Cicero promised heaven to all true patriots. Macrobius knows a higher virtue than patriotism, viz. contemplation of the divine, for the earth is but a point in the universe, 
and glory but a transient thing. The wise man is he who does his duty upon earth with his eyes fixed upon heaven. If, beside this pure and lofty idealism, grafted upon Roman patriotic feeling, we set the somewhat crude syncretism of the Saturnalia, we have a true reflection of all the higher thought of fourth-century paganism, except demonology and its lower accompaniment, magic. Of the former we have no direct indication beyond a doubtful etymology. The latter is present, but only in its least objectionable form, viz. divination. The omission is the more remarkable since demonology was a salient feature of the Neoplatonic system, and magic was its inevitable outcome. For the god of Neoplatonism was a metaphysical abstraction, yet a cause, and therefore bound to act, since a cause must have an effect. Being above action himself, there must be a secondary cause or causes, and the Platonic philosophy provided a host of intermediary beings who bridged the chasm between earth and God, and who interpreted and conveyed on high the prayers of men. The ranks of these divine agents were largely supplied by the old heroes and demons, who in the popular imagination were omnipotent, watching over human affairs. Old demons, however, were not equally beneficent. At the bottom of the scale of nature lurked evil demons, powers of darkness ceaselessly scheming man's destruction. It was to these supernatural beings, good and bad, that his mind turned in hope or fear. He dreaded the evil demons and sought to charm them. He loved the good and addressed to them his prayers and worship. Plotinus indeed forbade, but could not prevent, the worship of demons, for he admitted their real existence. With Porphyry, died circa 305, the tendency towards demonological rites is clearly marked. With Proclus, the habit is established. Thus, upon a monotheistic basis, there arose a new polytheism, in which the Olympian deities, whose credit had been shaken by rationalistic philosophy, were largely replaced by demons and demigods. Theology, which is presented on its pure side by Macrobius, degenerated in popular usage into theurgy. The ethical and intellectual aspirations, after union with the divine, were replaced by mere magic. Yet magic had the countenance of the philosophers, who, distinguishing carefully between white and black magic, to borrow later terms, repudiated the latter while they allowed the former. And although theurgy was a sharp declension from the principles of Platonism, whether old or new, it was very natural. It was extremely venerable, and it was able to take the color of science. The doctrine of the sympathy of the seen and unseen worlds, together with the gradual recognition of the mighty power of cosmic law, even when controlled by spirits or demons, resulted necessarily in an attempt to coerce these beings by means of material things, almost, one might say, by means of chemical reagents. So the larger the knowledge of nature and its operations, the wider the spread of magical practices. Magic had a living force which Christianity was for ages powerless to break. Another potent factor in keeping alive the flame of paganism was the belief in the eternal destiny of Rome.
Christian writers in the second century, like Tertullian, held that Rome would last as long as the world, and that her fall would coincide with the day of judgment. Christian writers, before whose eyes the city fell without the coming of the day, stood bewildered and in part regretful. The news dashed the pen from the hand of Jerome in his cell at Bethlehem. The human race is included in the ruins, he wrote. And Augustine, while he looks for the founding of an abiding and divine city in the room of that which had disappeared, and taunts the Romans with the poor protection afforded them by their gods, declares that the whole world groaned at the fall of Rome, and is himself proud of her great past and of the qualities of Roman endurance and faith that gave her so high a place among the nations. Orosius, again, who carried on the plan and thought of the De Civitate Dei, to whose mind the Roman Empire was founded upon blood and sin, yet proclaims, as Augustine his master had proclaimed, that Roman peace and Roman culture were greater and would last longer than Rome herself. If such were the sentiments of Christian writers towards the imperial city, which had been much more of a stepmother than a mother to their faith, what must pagans have felt for the home of their religion, upon which Plutarch had exhausted his store of eulogistic metaphor, C.F. de Fortuna Roma, which to Julian was Theophile Adamantine, dear to the gods, invincible, whose piety might surely claim divine protection. To discover this we have but to turn to the pages of Claudian and Rutilius Namatianus. Claudian, flourished A.D. 400, was not a Roman born, but a Greek-speaking native of Egypt. Yet he has Juvenal's contempt for Greek quirites and an unconcealed hatred of New Rome, and he finds his true inspiration in the great city on the Tiber, whom he addresses as Roma Dea, consort of Jupiter, mother of arts and arms and of the world's peace. Rise, reverend mother, he cries, and with firm hope trust the favoring gods. Lay aside old age's craven fear. O city coeval with the sky, iron fate shall never master thee till nature changes her laws and rivers run backward. But it is not only the city with her pomp and beauty, her hills and temples, the home of gods and fortune that compels his praise. The empire of which she was the visible head, an empire won by bloodshed, it is true, but kept together by the willing love of all the various races that have passed into the fabric. This is Claudian's real theme, the mighty diapason that runs through all his utterance and redeems his panegyric of Roman noble and emperor from the charge of mere servility. We have said that Claudian hardly ever refers directly to Christianity, and indeed echoes of spiritual language in his verse are faint and uncertain. The hostility which he must have felt against the religion that was sapping the seeds of the ancient worship is to be gathered from hints rather than from direct expression. That hostility lies near the surface in the return from exile, A.D. 416, of Rutilius Claudius Namatianus, a great Gaulish lord and friend of Roman lords who betrays more clearly than Claudian the sentiments of the ruling class. But even in Rutilius the allusions to Christianity are veiled. As a high official, he was prefect of the city, 
he could not openly attack the religion of the emperor, and must content himself with fulminations against Judaism, the root of superstition, and the monks whose life is a voluntary death to life, its pleasures, and its duties. It is almost needless to say that Rutilius de Gaulle shares the belief of Claudian the Egyptian in the destiny of Rome. The sight of the temple, still shining in the sun after the Gothic invasion, was to him an earnest of her perennial youth. Quote, Alia did not keep back the punishment of Brennus. Rome will rise more glorious for her present discomfiture. Ordo renascendi est crescere posse malis. This faith in Rome meant, of course, faith in the gods who had made her great, and good Romans all believed in them and were eager to maintain the national cult with which Rome's welfare was bound up. Roman worship was at all times directed mainly towards the attainment of material blessings, and the material disasters which, despite the optimism of Rutilius and his circle, lay heavy on the city, were attributed to the anger of forsaken deities. How, asked Symmachus, could Rome bring herself to abandon those under whose protection her conquests had been made and her power established? The appeal to the gods was already more than two centuries old, and now the disaster seemed to justify it. In answer to it, Augustine took up his pen and wrote The City of God. It occupied the spare moments of his episcopal life for thirteen years, A.D. 413 to 426, and with all its defects, it remains a noble example of the new philosophy of history, and sets in vivid contrast the two civilizations from whose fusion sprang the Middle Ages. He answers the heathen complaints one by one. Christianity was not responsible for Rome's disaster. The Christian enemy even tried to mitigate it, and Christian charity saved many pagans. Had Rome been really prosperous? Her history is dark with calamity. Had the gods really protected her? Remember Canae and the Caudine Forks. These boasted gods have ever been but broken reeds, from the fall of Troy onwards. The glory of Rome, which he admits, is due under the Christian's God to Roman courage and patriotism. This God has a destiny for Rome, and he means her to be the eternal city of a regenerate race. Such is the main subject of the first ten books. The next twelve develop the contrast between the city of men and the city of God, the one built upon love of self to the exclusion of God, the other built upon the love of God to the exclusion of self. The history of the world is briefly sketched, but the elaboration of the historical theme on which he sets great store was entrusted to his disciple, Orosius, a young Spanish monk who came to Hippo in A.D. 414. Orosius's cue was this, the world, far from being more miserable than before the advent of Christianity, was really more prosperous and happy. Etna was less active than of old. The locusts consumed less. The barbarian invasions were no more than merciful warnings. Here is an optimism as false in its way as that of Rutilius, but it shows the spirit that carried Europe safe through the darkness that was coming. Thirty years later, the situation had changed. Optimism was difficult. 
It could no longer be said with Orosius that the world was only tickled with fleas, and none the worse for it. Under the almost universal dominion of the barbarian, the old complaints of the heathen against heaven were now heard on the lips of the Christians. Why had a special dispensation of suffering accompanied the triumph of the cross? Selvian the Gaul takes up the theme, and in his treatise on the government of the world, compares Roman vice with barbarian virtue. His brush is too heavily charged, he protests too much, but he undoubtedly helped his contemporaries to recover tone, to bear the burdens laid upon them with resignation, and to see the guiding hand of providence in their misfortunes. Salvian has not the faith of Augustine and Orosius in the future of the empire. For him the future was with the new races. But Sidonius Apollinaris, circa 430-489, who perhaps saw them closer and at any rate describes them more minutely, is very loth to allow the ascendancy of the stinking savages over Rome, which is still the one city where the only strangers are slaves and barbarians. Thus, even when Roman citizens were bowing their heads to fate, even seeking help and an emperor from the hated Greeks, the old love of Rome was strong, the sense of her greatness hardly dimmed. It is not difficult to see how a city which could command so much affection even from Christians served as a strong support to those who, for her sake, strove to uphold her gods. End of section 67